0: at a loss because i just assumed she was either dead or in some sort of deep bunker In fact that she's just hanging out in uh new hampshire and then th- that they would just arrest her uh I-, I mean i've just been sort of like i have no idea now
1: i don't know Do my question is or what i'm thinking is that jaz is important obviously for the sex trafficking shit Right, so she was like intricately involved as like a groomer, yeah, you know, making sure that Epstein got his fix of like yes. disgustingly of like young girls for mm-hmm. all those years, but I'm not sure that Giz Lane really knew or knows that much about the money stuff, which is maybe you know the the thing that I, that the, well, the the unknown that I'm most interested at this point, like how did he get lex westner's uh billions? And to what extent was he connected to intelligence, as Acosta said?
0: Yeah, and but the thing is, is that as much as Justine appears to be someone, I mean, she is apparently was very devoted to Jeffrey Epstein personally, and her intimate relationship with the social side it's up, But she's also used as the key intelligence variable because of her parent for her dad right the Maxwell because of, of the there. maxwells and like all the stuff with uh, uh, masad and everything that's all through just or like a large chart of it is so if she's just i mean if she is just a, a a weirdo a sicko who is sick with epstein and wasn't really in on the on any of the really uh you know cloak and dagger stuff Then you kind of wonder, you got to have to then wonder, well, then to what degree is that even real? Because she's supposed to be one of the heavy hitters.
1: Right, right. Yeah, I guess like in my mind, and and maybe I've been wrong about this, Epstein and Ghislaine seem like equal partners in the pedophilia ring. Yes. Right, They're both running around the world, meeting with powerful people, grooming these girls and bringing them to do horrible sicko sex shit. But since her father was known to be intelligence, he was from the UK, but apparently he was also maybe, you know, tied to the Mossad. Oh, big time. And also a billionaire in his own right. It's, it's possible maybe that, that they could have been equal partners in whatever spy shit they were getting into too but then
0: that raises the question of how does she end up just getting plucked off of a farm in new hampshire by the fbi i mean the only, i mean is it is it is qAnon essentially correct that there's some sort of white hat black hat intelligence civil war occurring i mean if that's true the the problem the thing that's wrong about it will be what's wrong with all q theories is the idea that one side is good right 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 there's not there's no white hats it's just it's just monsters there's not yeah
2: that like, uh, just like Jeffrey Epstein was, was going to be made an example of to, like, maybe cover up the rest of the ring, um, Ghislaine Maxwell's name just got out there too much, and there was just too much interest in where she was and what she was doing, and, you know, whoever at uh, Southern District or, you know, whoever pulled the trigger on it decided, now we're going to include her in the Ep- Epstein Limited Hangout as a way of bracketing these two off from everybody else, right? She, you know, she's Bill Clinton's ex-girlfriend, apparently. Oh, yeah. Uh, so she is not just the uh, the kind of bag woman that uh, was too afraid to say no to her boyfriend that she's being portrayed as in the right. media. She was deeply implicated in 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 the money stuff, the sex trafficking stuff. The entire operation was, was her. Um, and the question is how much is going to how much more will come out now how much will they limit her prosecution
0: right that's the big thing is what happens with the case i think if she comes forward and she does some sort of plea agreement that is exculpatory of still living non-suicided people like prince andrew for example then there is this
1: real utility to that you have you have as as he said you bracketed it I like I think that's an important term as we like transition into an episode, the idea of the limited hangout. Mm-hmm. So I've got here of course Matt Crisman from Chapo Trap House. Hey. And I have two sitting in on History as a Weapon Eight for the first time, because of his vast expertise in all things para, we have Andy Gitlitz from the Antifada.
2: i the house skeptic today. <laughs> I don't know as much as you guys do, but I, I can maybe try to uh, burst some bubbles along the way. The
1: tide has really turned on Prolico. Uh, She was on the other foot now. But like a a limited hangout, why don't we define that? Because I think as we go through this episode where we're talking about parapolitics, there are certain forms of, let's say, uh, persuasion, forms of disinformation, ways that power works, essentially, that stay true through time. And the limited hangout, I think, is is a term that that represents something that has happened in the past and could be happening with Gislaine. So, Matt, what, what what's a limited hangout?
0: The limited hangout is when some a, somebody like the intelligence community or the Nixon administration, Nixon famously called talked about the term in the Nixon tapes, talked about full hangout, limited hangout, uh, and it it's essentially a public relations strategy when some plot some element of your schema has is going to come out is is no longer able to maintain full deniability and and secrecy and it is a the strategy basically boils down to either leaking or releasing information that is harm that is that is uh incriminating but that obscures a greater more important and more horrifying secret right. that is left unspoken. I think a perfect example of limited hangout would be the Frank Olson case, yes, documented yes. in the Errol Morris documentary *Wormwood*. For years, uh, I knew about the Frank Olson case.
1: It blew my fucking mind when I saw that Netflix thing all those years back. Yeah,
0: because the Frank the Frank Olson case was an ex- it was part of the MKUltra reveal. Uh, limited, which was also a limited hangout, because As we only we will argue. <laughs> we we only got we only got a fraction of the MKUltra documents because they were founded in annex, much after the initial the initial large the original cache was destroyed. And Frank Olson was this uh, CIA-affiliated uh, uh, biologist who jumped out of a window of a Manhattan high-rise in the fifties, and. The F and the CIA years later admitted that they had dosed him with acid as an experiment, which, was a thing that they loved to do. Oh, yeah. Uh, big when time. when acid was first being played with uh, as a potential interrogation aid by the FBI or by the CIA, they loved just giving it to anybody.
1: Not even just like, um, you know, government biologists, but also like generals mm-hmm. and famous people and a bunch of hippie kids. Yeah. And soldiers, obviously, big time. They were experimenting Ted with Kaczynski. On, Ted Kaczynski. Uh, Whitey yep. Bolger. <laughs> Whitey Bolger. They
0: hired uh, prostitutes in uh, San
1: Francisco to dose their
0: customers and fill the results operation midnight climax so (laughs) frank olson the story that they admitted to was we dosed him to see what happened and he freaked out and jumped out a window like from a psa about not doing drugs right uh the errol morris documentary makes a compelling case that frank olson was murdered to protect the probably to protect uh the secret that we used biological weapons in uh the korean war (laughs) right uh, because he worked at Fort Detrick, the 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 bug lab that we have, uh, where were they also where that mastery anthrax came from, also oh, in yeah. two thousand one, <laughs> two
1: thousand one. Remember that sent to uh, Senator Patrick uh, Leahy, yeah, uh, the main senator,
0: and Tom Brokaw, <laughs> the, and the
1: National Enquirer, the people who are trying to block the implementation of the uh, Patriot Act. All of a sudden, got a bunch of anthrax in the mail. They came from, had to have come from a government laboratory because it was like the exact right strain, too complex for any terrorist to make. And it just happened, yeah. And then the Patriot Act was passed, and the story just went yeah. away. Just the guy away. that they
0: were harassing killed himself, and they just what he probably did. It. Yeah, that's probably it. case <laughs> closed. So, but that that also case is a perfect for for years. The CIA was out there having admitted that they dosed their own scientists, and that he killed himself. That looks bad. Bad. Yeah. It's like why would we admit that if it wasn't true? Well, you would if you wanted to ignore the
1: fact that you'd mur- you wanted to hide the fact that you'd murdered him to protect biological warfare projects, which the Koreans and the Chinese have for like 50, 60 years been saying, like we have yeah. proof that the United States used biological weapons in Korea, yeah. and it was, and even the um, the prisoners uh, in the 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 prisoners of war in the in the Korean War were like made to understand and made to convey that this actually happened, this war crime happened, and America just swept it under the rug because that was too much for us. To deal with. It's super top secret. There's actually an amazing bit of auto hypnosis there because you had US
0: POWs testifying to the use of biological weapons. And the US government's response was by inventing the concept of brainwashing, basically out of whole cloth. The Manchurian candidate. And then deciding that it was real, a thing they made up to excuse their biological weapons, and then decided, well, we better get on doing that ourselves. A thing they made up, and that's one. Of, that was one of the beginning uh, impetuses of MK Ultra was as a interrogation uh, aid, as a way, as a truth serum, essentially. That was what they thought acid was at first. The first, the first thing they did was they, they did a concentrated cannabis. Uh, a substance. they oh, cool! They're yeah. right ahead of their time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they were like, yeah, like just super, like dank edibles, basically. Yeah. That was how, that was like during World War II. That was the first run of of uh, of truth serums uh-huh. that they they experimented with in the SS. But then the fifties, they settled on acid.
1: Yeah, it was you know more effective, more mind blowing, uh, more predictable results, yeah. and and, and uh, a, a much easier in, or much
0: smaller dosage, which is important.
1: Very important. So, like, you know, you watch this Errol Morris film about this family who's been trying to get justice for Frank Olsen for all these decades, and at the end of it, it's it's revealed that, you know, ultimately this was hiding something bigger. That's definitionally a limited hang, limited hangout. I think also, too, as we look at this history, as we go through it, Something as important to U.S. history and the history of the CIA and intelligence and foreign policy in this country as, say, the famous Family Jewels, mm-hmm. which were released by the CIA in, what, 1975? Yeah. Under Colson by um, or William Colby, I believe it was. Mm. This, this vast trove of documents about uh, misdeeds done by the CIA was also, in its own way, obscuring and hiding much worse things that had been happening for decades before that. Yes, so yeah. even the, the the most the the revelations we see as most important about what intelligence what the Paris State was doing, probably in and of itself was just a bracketed off limited yeah. hangout of that info. Right, and that's and th- th- that's the best
0: way to understand most of what is common knowledge uh, among uh, about revealed intelligence is is that none of this stuff. I- has, very little of it anyway was is revealed the way we would imagine in a movie. Whistleblower showing up at Congress risking his luck. It was mostly on the terms of the agencies themselves, right. which means that by definition, it's massaged and it's it's uh, it's shaped and it's
1: obscuring more than it's revealing. It's what they're willing to admit to because their asses are already shown and they have to give something exactly. Basically. Because there's at, all
0: all it is at the end of the day is some subpoenas, you know. There's no real compelling... nothing. Nobody nobody ever cracked open the books of the CIA against their will, you know? So that means that anything that they've ever admitted to has been on their own terms.
1: Now, folks, we are here today not merely to share, like, some mind-bending, mind-blowing, conspiratorial shit, although we will get into that. I think it's pretty fair to say, whether on Chapo or whether on Antifada, certainly on Truanon, right? uh, People have the opportunity to hear... These theories about, you know, crazy CIA or you know, capitalist-involved hijinks around the world—things that are fascinating to us because they—they they reveal some sort of power structure that exists underneath the surface—that shows the ways that, like, powerful intelligence agencies like the CIA are able to, you know, not just fuck around. Uh, across the entire world and change governments and change societies, but also ultimately are able to use their propaganda powers against us in yeah. the United States, either covert or overt. All of that is is central and it's super important. And I think it's done very well all over the place. What we're here today to do, I don't, I, I've been trying to struggle to try to figure out what to call it, but maybe it's like the political economy of parapolitics, maybe historical para. Uh, Materialism, I'm not sure what it is But I think the important thing for us As we've talked this over and thought about it Is that There are these subterranean networks that exist Of power, and it's not simply A rogue agency, it's not simply MKUltra, or even COINTELPRO For that matter It is a long-going And continuous network of power That encompasses not just intelligence Agencies, but also directly Capitalists and people working in the interest of capitalists, and also other aspects of society like the mafia and the unions, um, all of those powers coming together in order to ensure that the conditions for capitalist accumulation are there or are expanded and continue to exist in the future. Yeah. Right. The, the point of these things isn't an evil government. Or it's not a, the point isn't a blood for oil, per se, even. The point is, is that there are this there's this tapestry of power that we don't we can barely see, but ultimately is active in this world and has been active for the world in the world that that exists under the plain power and the plain politics that we see every day.
0: Yeah, that's it. And that it it provides it's it's a lubricant. That's kind of the way I think of it, because. You have you have a political economy, you have a political structure, and an economic structure that are that have their own logic and that operate, you know, of their own momentum, but that are not without friction and without uh, without the emergence of stochastic uh, resistance. And in a situation like that, you need to be able to uh, to neutralize potential emergent threats as quickly and as ruthlessly as possible, which our conventions of politics hypothetically deny us. Right. So that's why you need it to be
1: totally uh, uh, submerged. And, you know, for all Outward's appearances, and certainly by way of the media and the propaganda we get day in and day out, we're meant to live in a democratic society. Yeah. <laughs> we're meant to live in a free society. So as, as we're going to show here, like... You know, whether it's like covert sabotage of democracies abroad, whether it's the overthrow of governments and the installation of dictators, whether it's at home things like COINTELPRO that that seek to shut down like emergent leftist populist movements in the United States. So Marx famously talked about in a somewhat schematic but compelling way in the Communist Manifesto that the capitalist state is the executive committee for the, for the entirety of the bourgeoisie, right? right. So the state exists <clears throat> as, as this semi-autonomous, independent power center in bourgeois society that makes sure that the general interest, not the specific interests of capital, right. or even specific sectors of capital, but the general interest of the bourgeois class are upheld. And it has the power to do that through coercion and the power to do that through violence. Yes, because there is a
0: generalized interest of the ruling class, but it is not perceived by individual members of it. They perceive they in specific individual interests, which, of course, are in conflict with one another because they're all competing. That's right. And, and someone has to some force has to corral them, essentially, and transcend their individual authorities. And, and supersede them to, for, to look out for their own good. Because without
1: that, they will allow the system to be destroyed by short-sightedness. It will be the jungle, you know, where, where, no, where no man survives. Mm-hmm. The, um, the interesting thing when we think about this, because we're going to be looking at about the hundred, 100 years back, right? So the early 20th to mid-20th century. Remember we were talking to this, about this on the beach last week? Before capitalist society, so if we're talking about in, like, feudal society, there wasn't the need for, like, an independent bureaucratic apparatus to exist above and beyond society that made sure that the common people of that society did the right thing or, you know, to make sure that if they were going to have an uprising, it would be stopped or even to overthrow foreign powers. In a feudal system, right, there's – you have the church – and you have the lords, and there's really no, no reason to have a separate government bureaucracy outside of that uh, network of power in order to like um, regulate society, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, the church did that. The church was the, was the social I- adherent there
0: and, and the glue. But the, 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 the thing that's liberating and terrifying about living in a modern mediated Uh, pluralistic democracy is that there is no over supreme cultural or religious authority that has anything even close to a a bare majority of influence over people.
1: Uh, And, and that, that has, that role then has to be filled. So it's like a very, this idea of like the, the parapolitical world is I think it's fair to say a very capitalist specific entity. Yes. And even, even to the extent that like, If you even look back at the 19th century, you know, a lot of the way to understand U.S. history is to look at what's called the state capacity of the government, right? The ability of the government to, like, pull together information, analyze that, and then act upon it either with violence or coercion. In the 19th century, you had plenty of competing capitalist powers in the United States, right? But you didn't even have an FBI, let alone a CIA, yeah. You had what essentially existed like a privatized sort of national security state. Yeah. To the extent that, you know, I was thinking about the um, the filibusters, right? Yeah. Or the freebooters, <clears throat> guys like uh, William Walker, who uh, yeah. right after the the uh, Mexican American War in 1853, just like a random ass dude, you know, t- tied to like powerful capitalists coming out of the military, American citizen, decided to just go off to Baja California take it over, and claim it as part of the United States, right? Yeah. All on his own. No no government interference whatsoever. Then, after he fails at doing that, freeboots his ass down to Honduras, where he tries to do the same thing again and basically take over Honduras for the United States, you know, with some segments of capital in the state who are interested in that, but basically just freebooted his way into, like, trying to create, a, you know, a, a coup. Yeah,
0: and he, he, he would he did what, like, the explorers of of in the early modern period did is that he would he would basically pitch himself to different robber barons and say i can i can turn the, the x or y chunk of latin america into your pr- private fiefdom i think it was vanderbilt who underwrote or underwrote his trip to honduras
1: yeah, so there's like there's elements of that that seem similar to the famous like CIA coups that existed in Guatemala or Iran or whatever, but they're not dictated by the state writ yeah. large. There are elements of the state that know about it, but it's like technically illegal, and it was just sort of a private enterprise. That's the important thing is that it happened in the private sphere, this sort of adventuring going abroad. Mm-hmm. Then when you look at the other side of the parapolitics coin, which is like the massaging of public... Um, perceptions and also keeping the social order on the streets of the United States Mm -hmm. that was also privatized because in the mid to late 19th century, there was, as we know, intense labor violence in the United States, the bloodiest labor history who was, I mean, there were of course injunctions where the national guard would be sent out to break up strikes, but who was on the ground in a covert capacity and over capacity every fucking day But the Pinkertons. The gun thugs. The gun thugs. Yes. It was literally a private corporation of private investigators who privately went out, hired by private capitalists in order to do the kind of work that the CIA was doing in Italy in 1947. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I, I think there's like one important moment where I think like, I think as the, as the 20th century dawns, it becomes clear to capitalists as we start to have a much more complex capitalist society uh, with a lot of social fissures that existed that hadn't existed before with industrialization and early, early imperialism, too, on the part of the United States, that it was no longer sufficient to leave this to private individuals. Yes. A famous thing happened in 1907. It's called the Panic of 1907. Without getting into the entire story, Essentially, some jerk-off bankers in New York City decided to borrow a bunch of money to corner the world market in copper. Failing to corner the world market in copper, which is just what people did in 1907. They love cornering markets. Yeah. was their favorite thing. Best shit. I mean, you know, why deal with competition? Yeah, Yeah, they just set the price. Set the price. Another thing that the capitalist state is good for is like, Trying to actually create the conditions of comp- competition. Yeah, the thing that's supposed—the <laughs> thing that made the great
0: divergence, the thing that made capitalism explode, human uh, uh, quality of life, I- innovative, the the fission the of competitive innovation, the, par- the, in the the fragmented state system of, of Europe. That that was but. Mature capitalism actually turns out fucking hates competition (laughs) and wants to destroy it at every turn.
1: So especially in the late 19th, early 20th century is when the populist and progressive movements want to come and break up the monopolists and the trusts. Yeah. But not in 1907. Tried to corner uh, Knickerbocker Trust uh, was the central bank in this, the bank at the center of this. Uh, And failing that, a lot of the money that had been borrowed in order to do this... um, the banks lost that money. All of a sudden, banks started to fail left and right. And there was no Federal Reserve at this point. There was an independent treasury. There was no public power or private public power out there that could bring liquidity into yeah. this situation as banks refuse to lend to each other. And as there was, there were bank runs, like people literally going down, you know, downtown to the and financial like, district. I got to take my money out of the yeah. bank. It's like, it's not here. <laughs> right. uh, we're, we're, there's a thing called leverage yeah. and we're not sure we can, uh, you know, give each of you a hundred thousand dollars at this moment. So what ends up happening? And this ties it back to this private public thing is that a man by the name of J.P. Morgan, Mm -hmm. the most powerful banker in the United States, he ends up having to take personal control over this fiscal crisis to the point that in the most dramatic period of 1907, he literally takes the most powerful bankers in New York City brings them to his Fifth Avenue mansion, sits them down and says, I need 25 mil from you, 25 mil from you, 25 mil from you. We're going to save this financial system. Those capitalist bankers are like, no, we're not. Go fuck yourself. I don't want to give you any money for this shit. You know, devil take the hindmost. So JP Morgan stands up, leaves the room, and locks those motherfuckers in his library <laughs> <laughs> all night long until they finally agreed after like all these hours in the smoke-filled room to bail out the global financial infrastructure of the United States. Similar thing with like the Pinkertons and the Freebooters, right? It became clear to the United States by 1913 when Wilson signs the Federal Reserve Act that it was no longer right or good or sufficient to have private players like J.P. Morgan bail out the entire financial yeah, system, yeah, you can't rely on that. Because what if he that. wasn't there? Yeah. <laughs> <So> you cannot
0: <laughs> rely on that. What if he goes bankrupt? What, right. if, what if this dumbass <laughs> tries to corner the fucking <laughs> copper
1: market? So, so that that shows, right? So, so the, the dynamic there is private interests with in a low state capacity system having to jump in and save that system or operate, you know, in order to save that system. Um, and then the govern the the government re- realizing that you need a federal reserve that can provide that liquidity in a more orderly way, something very similar happens to that in terms of like intelligence and counterintelligence. Soon thereafter, that with the Palmer raids. Yes, right. So so when you're talking about the Palmer raids, uh, you want to give us a, a first red scare. So uh,
0: the first red scare was initiated uh, as in a as. Uh, in response to a series of anarchist mail bombings across uh, the United States of of high level government officials and and plutocrats. And uh, the response from uh, a Mitchell Palmer, the attorney general of the Wilson administration was a massive sweep of subversives, specifically uh, uh, immigrant ones uh, to the United States and a wholesale deportation. That that was, that was the sweep that sent uh, Emma Goldman famously to, to Russia. Uh, And, yeah, and it carried out uh, by a young Bureau of uh, Investigation chief, uh, J. Edgar Hoover, but in a subsidiary capacity to Palmer, uh, and when the Palmer raids ended up sort of causing a public relations blowback because of how heavy-handed they were, Palmer took the fall, and Hoover was able to uh, get out of it with his stature increased to the point exactly. that he was able to shepherd
1: into creation the FBI. Exactly. So the FBI soon thereafter, comes out of this mass social oppression in the United States. And Hoover uses these same sorts of techniques that he used to, like, infiltrate and ultimately arrest and or deport all these thousands of radicals in the United States. Of course, under the threat of what had just happened in 1917, which is the Bolshevik Revolution. Yes. Yes. So it's only, only... When the government sees fit to take this from a private enterprise with Pinkertons and freebooters into a public one, when the threat of a workers' revolution becomes real, right, and it becomes very fucking real to them in 1917.
0: Yeah, that, that's the moment when, when that question of state capacity becomes paramount. Like, right. do we? Are we? Are for the good of capitalism? Are we going to be able to build up the states, the state forces, which our rulers have? uh ideologically and practically opposed for the entirety of american history right. due to the desire to maintain their fiefdoms because you're able to do that in america thanks to all that free real estate everybody gets to think that they're just the king of their little domain they don't right. realize they're all socially enmeshed uh but when you have the possibility of a bolshevik knocking up the Bering Strait, all of a sudden uh the shit gets real as they say in uh bad boys too and <laughs> And there is that transference of power, that authority away from the private sector, and it's abrogated and abstracted over to uh, the state uh, under the assumption that it will work, that they will use that power to look out for the general interests
1: of the ruling class. That's exactly right.
2: Yeah, I think uh, it's also interesting that this counter revolutionary maneuver of the Red Scare that happens in the United States happens in a lot of other places in the world where there is Bolshevik inspired uprisings that are far more potent. These create not necessarily a, a secret uh, intelligent agency or sow the seeds for that, but just create fascism, like the first fascist bands. Uh, fascism em- emerges in Italy after 1917 to put down waves of massive occupations, right. communist party-led occupations in the north of the country. In Argentina, there was a near revolution in 1919, and the, there had to be the creation of these... Uh, fascist hooligan bands to uh, to turn it into a pogrom, basically, while killing the revolutionaries. And you see examples of this uh, basically all over the world, where uh, reaction not only had to be uh, like funded and empowered to put down these uprisings, but it also had to be kind of minted mm. with uh, sort of patriotic pretenses minted alongside of it in places that previously weren't patriotic in the way that they were, uh, you know,
1: post World War One. And and all of this. Um internal sort of um, state repression that we're talking about in the 1920s. I think this is really important. Like the FBI under Hoover, uh, certainly after the general strike of Seattle in 1919, which scared the living shit out of the ruling class in this country. And after the Palmer Raids, right? It seemed like this was a domestic issue, right? We could send our troops over to help crush the Bolsheviks in Russia, but we can deal with this at home. With, as Andy said, the rise of fascism and then also, of course, the consolidation of the Bolshevik Revolution under the USSR, it became very clear leading up to the Second World War uh, for the U.S. ruling class and for the capitalist state that doing this domestically simply with the FBI sweeping up radicals was not enough. There was going to have to be an international response to this. You needed something like an FBI that could go abroad, you know, and start doing shit.
0: Yeah. Uh, specifically, the the uh, World War Two is the real turning point then, because there there was sort of a brief period there uh, in the twenties and thirties a a, a, a uh, isolationist fantasia in American elite circles where there really was a belief that we can just sort of sit all this out. And and a thought, nice
1: big ocean between us. As long and all as we got struggles. the
0: American Legion out there castrating Wobblies, we don't really have to worry about anything else going out in the rest of the world, right? But World War II and our and our inevitable enmeshment into it, even though huge chunks of the ruling class and popular opinion didn't want it, it disabused a lot of uh, of of the planners of any idea that that was a viable option. But this was this is now a truly global uh, 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 battlefield. And so the OSS is the first foreign intelligence agency that to, to, uh, outside of, you know, a military context explicitly tasked with doing international
1: shit. International shit through the Office of Strategic Services. Mm-hmm. And I think to tie this into the larger history, too, it was, you know, we've talked about this plenty of times on the show, the, you know, the 1930s into the 1940s, really into the 1950s is when... The American ruling class starts to realize that with the development of of industry in the United States and with the decline of Great Britain, that we're going to end up. They certainly knew this by Bretton Woods in nineteen forty four. No, this we, is us now. We, this is us. The the this burden is on we're, our shoulders. We're Prince Hal
0: taking right. over for Henry the Fourth.
1: So the OSS is a a very rational response to that, right? Mm-hmm. To to defeat the threat of. Um, nazism abroad and then ultimately towards the end of the war starting to realize that guess what our good allies uncle joe and all them might have to, might have to fight them too someday
0: yeah i mean i mean obviously a lot of the people who ended up forming the the core of oss like alan dulles uh they certainly even throughout the entire war were kind of sad and annoyed that they were fighting the germans instead of the russians uh, and their treatment of the of not high level Nazis reflects that. <laughs> yes,
1: <laughs> considering there was, there they mostly
0: just gave them job uh, applications instead <laughs> of arrest warrants right. when they found them. There's
2: uh, also uh, people like Marcusa in OSS right during the war. Like there, right. it, there were Carl Jung too in the gover- in the OSS and other parts uh, in the state. And this becomes the grounds for another major parapolitical conspiracy, which is the Birchers and none dare call it treason and all that stuff. Because there was a time when there was a popular front. The popular front, yeah. yeah that's right.
0: Yeah, the remnants of the
2: power of popular front
0: are what give fuel to that early paranoid style. And because I, cause it was true.
1: Yeah. It, and, I mean, and, my God,
0: we, <laughs> like was, the, the Russia was able to beat, uh, beat Hitler in large part because of all the goddamn Jeeps and j- trucks and shit we sent to them.
1: And, and, and think about it, too, because by the time the OSS comes around, you have a 8 to 10 million person movement. In the streets and factories, the workplaces of America, that it doesn't create wholesale communist unions, yeah. but certainly, right, they, the, the, the planners could look at this and be like, holy shit, is this happening here now, this yeah. giant union movement? How do we corral that Workers' power. How do we take off the militant edge of that? How do we make sure that this unionism becomes like a AFL-type, uh, responsible business unionism? Because the, there was the the, the reactionary uh, hysteria of the
0: Popular Front movement was that all all, the, all these popular all this this whole this whole uh, union with our uh, alliance with the Russians and, and along cultural lines and everything. This is a this is a Trojan horse for communists in America. And the thing
1: is, it kind of was. That's <laughs> yeah, true. They ended up <laughs> they, in the federal they ended government. Up in, fucking you know. Harry
0: Dexter White. Right. Uh Uh... uh, uh Obviously, uh, Pumpkin Patch motherfucker, what's his name? Uh, Alger Hiss. Yes. Uh, yes uh, so. uh, the Carl Fuchs stealing the goddamn nuclear yeah. uh, codes. He got right in there on the Manhattan. Yeah, Project. and and of course, like the, the the leadership of the most militant and effective unions, wow. ILWU, Harry, yes. Bridges Harry
1: Bridges. Harry was a member of the Communist Party. Mm-hmm. The United were, Electrical Workers were communists. Yeah,
2: there's a lot of popular support for stalin and for the soviet union yeah. uncle among, joe like people who fought in world war ii and realized that they were a potent ally right um and that uh you know i don't know too much about this period but apparently that had to be like pushed back through propaganda largely racial propaganda but a lot, of course a lot of new red scare shit too
0: yeah well the, the, so, the,
2: the thing that that, is, that out
1: was it,
0: breaking the popular front and it started with the Truman administration. Yes. The first, red, the, the first uh, uh, persecution of, of communists and high levels of government and, and unions and stuff happened before McCarthy was even in the Senate. It happened under Acheson at the State Department and under in the Truman, second Truman administration
1: specifically. Uh, the, the fucking everyone talks about Taft Hartley. In 1947, and talks about the restrictions on union activity, like secondary boycotts, general strikes, and all that. But part of that was essentially making a loyalty oath exist yeah. and kicking all of the communist leaders out of the trade union movement in the United States in 47 yeah. under Truman, way before McCarthy. It pl-
0: flushed them all down the toilet. And, That's it. And turned and the the remaining uh, residue were people who just kind of wanted to get a fatter paychecks. And smoke large cigars on Union junkets to Las Vegas to watch Lenny Sands <laughs> sing a parody of Fly Me to the Moon the uh, El- American tabloid.
1: Well, you set that up nicely now because, not to spoil anything, but the United States wins the Second World War and goes on to become the global hegemon uh, up until today, although though that's certainly cracking right <laughs> yeah, now.
0: <I'm> <laughs> waiting for the to, to, to call it. As Matt looks at his watch now. right now. Yeah. yeah,
1: any minute now, right? But uh, I want to introduce, because we got to the unions, and unions, unfortunately, like, where is... Pro rah rah union as anybody else in the world, but the unions don't look so good in the Cold War in terms of what they do to work with central intelligence and work with the capitalists and also in order to undermine communist activity abroad and at home. But I want to introduce another very potent and important social actor into this parapolitical universe we're talking about, this, this network of, of obscure power, and that is. Lucky Luciano. Matt, hey. tell us what happened hey. to, to lucky and
0: Squidishi. Yes. So, uh <laughs> in the second like World Luciano, War. was one of the guys who created the the outfit, who created the the Commission families. Yeah. Uh uh like the high modernist dream of the mafia when it was literally a table a table of guys from the different cities who ran him bigger than US Steel as as uh as Meyer Lansky said. He was one of the original guys him and Meyer Lansky, after wiping out the old bosses uh in in New York, they created a new uh, system that didn't really give a shit about the old country. Uh, they didn't give a shit about uh, fucking fighting over a go- someone who stole a goat from someone's village in Sicily in 1600 that's still being fought on the streets of the Lower East Side. They didn't, because they were Americans. Right, yes. And they didn't give a shit about the past. They want to make money. And Meyer Lansky famously never went to jail for a minute of his life, but uh, uh, Luciano got popped uh, the late 30s on a on a pandering charge mm. as, as as a as a pro, as a pimp essentially some low hanging fruit Yes, yeah, sort a, a of a capone type of deal right uh, and he was he was in prison on a, I think for like a 20 year bit or something like that when World War one World War two started he was uh, met in prison by representatives of the OSS who made a deal with him the way it's popularly described is uh, that he would get uh, Clemency in exchange for protecting the docks right. in New York, protecting because the mafia had such a huge presence in the labor movement and amongst the workers and and, and amongst all that all that shipping coming in and out of New York ports, very gotta, important gotta for people, the war effort. Get, exactly, they were all there getting their beak wet, which means they were on the ground in a way that. U.S. government
1: couldn't be. They were like the ecclesiastical powers during feudalism. They yes. were embedded. They in were these the social embedded. networks.
0: They, yes, the mafia was embedded in the social network of, of the ports, the way the cops or the FBI could never be. Exactly. Uh, and so, yeah, they they watched out for sabotage, which I'm sure they did. But more importantly, they made sure that there were no strikes. Right. They made sure Luciano basically promised the government they're not going to you're not going to see any labor. Nobody's going to be le- leveraging that strategic importance. Uh, on behalf of the
1: workers, right because uh, some kneecaps might get broken, yeah. somebody might fall off a bridge, mm-hmm. you know, any number of things might happen to stop that
0: exactly and the u s government was good to its word at the end of the war uh Luciano was uh he was his sentence
1: was commuted, but he was deported, deported. but he did such great work abroad though oh no, that that's was one of the, the best thing. things that happened to
0: him. we, said, we uh, uh, it's sort of written up as like oh, they kind of they kind of tricked him by deporting him, but they sort of had to because Luciana then is one of their point men in Italy in the postwar period. First in the immediate postwar, like the mafia guides literally helped the U.S. military, like
1: through Palermo, yeah, <laughs> like like a
0: guy like a guy with a shotgun from like the, the Godfather, R- leading, riding
1: a, riding a goat in front of a yeah, tank, telling yeah, the, uh, leading uh, Mark Yanks Clark over over the hill, yeah,
0: <laughs> like that's uh, that they had an actual operational relationship with the U- U.S. military during the war. After the war, the mafia, Luciano as as the the, go-between, was then used uh, to uh, send out the money, to to send the bribes, do the intimidation and the murder necessary to ensure that the communists did not win the election of 1948. There you go.
1: And also, you know, at the same time setting up a uh, international hero tra- heroin yes, trafficking. The <laughs> yes, the French uh, Connection. Yes, the famous
0: French Connection. The French Connection starts right after World War II. Uh, ha- Afghan, Turkish heroin through the ports of, uh, of uh, Marseille to the United States at every point controlled by mafia uh, groups uh, that were in direct contact with the
1: U.S. intelligence community. And you didn't want communists on those docks anyway is disrupt disrupting trade so the same person that made sure there were no strikes during the second world war the same group i should say are now shuttling all these drugs into the united states and it's pretty fucking clear that that deal that had been struck between organized crime and intelligence in the united states prevailed after that period for many 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 years
0: yeah because it is a match made in heaven because uh intelligence needs to do things off the books, violent things, which means you need people who are adept at violence, and and organized criminals are adept at violence. They're socially embedded, which makes them yes. able to go places and know things that intelligence community officers won't be. The fucking Yale fucking wasps, uh, the, the the hasty the, pudding assholes, <laughs> the like Sullivan and Cromwell. Can imagine James Jesus Angleton like trying to go hang out like a, a working class bar like the Marseille docks. It's not going right. to work. Uh, so they're socially embedded they are reactionary yes. because as a friend of my a friend of mine had a perfect description of the of like the criminal mindset lobotomized by the cash nexus
1: <laughs> nice. as in
0: Gosh. totally like denuded of any kind of social character Pure, like as Marx described the lump proletariat right, right right uh just ethically purely empty. self-seeking like like a little mini capitalist with a gun right uh and so they will seek their own inv- that you you could guarantee that they're never gonna they're not going to turn on you. They're not going to turn on you uh, out of ideology. Right. You don't have to worry. Oh no, they're going to get. They're going to get a conscience. They're going to decide to throw in with the workers. No. No. They, they always and happen. forever want to make money. No double and They agents. know how to do. And they know how to carry <laughs> out violence and get away with it. And more, most importantly, as uh, the United States intelligence community, it is technically part of the federal government. Yeah, which means it's yeah. technically funded by. The federal budget, right? And yeah. you know, obviously, it's very easy to sh- to uh, finesse that, but but there's a limit to how much. But you there's can a finesse. limit to how much you can finesse it, as opposed to the essentially limitless amount of free, untraceable cash that flows through the global black market that organized crime controls. Yeah. And CIA, that the, is you the get the its CIA at too. any point <laughs> can tap into and right. have, like the the like a huge like. I, the majority of funding for the real horrible shit in the CIA through its history is not coming through appropriations or even black budgets. It's
1: just straight drug money. 100%. If you look through the the mid to late 20th century, of course, everywhere we have a global operation, drug networks break up, break out uh, at at that point.
0: Heroin in Afghanistan, the heroin production in Afghanistan since the U.S. invasion has gone up something like 500%. Surprise! Surprise! The who could have predicted? We're effectively re- ending. They they had a, a poppy eradication pro- program that was effectively working. The Taliban, <laughs> like a, 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 a true believers. yeah. But like, but yeah. not. You want to talk about like limited state capacity? <laughs> yeah. The U.S. military is somehow not, not only not able to continue their uh,
1: their effective heroin reduction. Pre-
0: It just suddenly goes the other way and
1: explodes explodes under our watch. (laughs) Surprise, surprise. Well, I I mean, that's all exactly spot on, too. And I think that when we get to the post-war period and we start to see this epic global battle between uh, Eastern communism and Western democracy on the other. The Communist Party, you know, as much as it had devolved through the twenties and the and thirties, still had loyal foot soldiers all over the world, millions upon millions of mm-hmm. them, who would sacrifice their time, would sacrifice even their lives, and certainly do sort of uh, purposeful, organic activity in order to help the Soviet Union because they thought the Soviet Union was correct and represented the world they want to live in. So the communists actually started off off the bat like uh, on a better foot than the reactionaries did because it was something that tru- people truly believed in and truly wanted to see happen in every single country, in every single workplace across the entire globe. The capitalist powers didn't have that. They didn't have that except the foot soldiers of the mafia. Yeah. Those were, so if the loyal foot soldiers were communists around the world, trying to spread international communism, the loyal foot soldiers, the true believers were the mafia because of all the reactionary tendencies yeah. that Matt was talking about. And then you
0: got a thin layer of genuine fascists, like ideologically committed fascists, specifically in Italy. Propaganda uh, due. But even those guys are not doing it out of the goodness of their heart. They're getting paid. Like I can't imagine even any of those uh, those those black propaganda guys from Italy doing what Ramon Mercader did, for example, splitting Trotsky's skull open, knowing full well that you're probably going to go to prison for the rest of your
2: life. Right, right, right. That's ended a up true with a believer. Nice pension, though.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, Matt, you mentioned uh, Alan, D- Alan Dulles. Yes. You mentioned uh, that skeletal figure, that haunted history, Jesus Le James Jesus ghost. Angleton. Um. One thing that these guys had in common that you pointed to is that they both came from the Wasp elite. Oh, yeah. If you look at the early CIA especially, whether that's Dulles or Frank Wisner or Angleton, these people came almost to a man, the leadership of the CIA, out of Wall Street banking firms. Yep. They came out of Sullivan and Cromwell. Brown Brothers Harriman. Brown Brothers Harriman, right? And why is that? I mean, it's for obvious reasons, right? Yeah, because... If, if the new if, if the government is coming into awareness
0: of its need for an intelligence capacity, the people in in the people uh, in private because obviously this is not a capacity the government hasn't developed, the people in the private sector who have the closest thing to that are people in international finance.
1: There you go. People negotiating deals, people, I don't know, funding the Nazis, like <laughs> Sullivan and Cromwell. Prescott did. Bush. <laughs> <laughs> people with people with an international network with eyes on the ground already. Exactly. In the 20s and 30s, who can then take that private power and turn it into a bureaucratized public power. Yes. And
0: because they were doing it on behalf of the perceived interests of, of finance capital in America, this is just the codification and the
1: bureaucratization of that of, of that knowledge base they just needed to do it in the general
0: interest of the bourgeoisie exactly <laughs> so that they so that they could look 2 feet front of them and not just walk off the fucking end of the cliff like what will happen if you allow capitalists to do whatever
1: they want right as we're seeing now yes <laughs> and he, so yeah this early cia is waspy ass white motherfuckers from connecticut oh yeah gallivanting around the globe and as we see very early on, because Truman initially says, "A lot of people in the United States say we don't want a permanent covert apparatus yeah. in this country. We don't want to have a secret government. We just beat the Nazis. We just beat the. We don't want a Stasi. We don't not a Stasi. We don't want a Gestapo. In <laughs> we don't America. want a Gestapo. <laughs> uh, we don't want a Gestapo in this country. Nazi right? We
2: weren't so bad in retrospect." <laughs> Oh, they had files on people. Oh no, they had a sense
1: of humor. I'll give them that. Oh, I—they were surveilling everybody's telephone calls. <laughs> I will give
2: the Stasi
0: credit that even though they were Germans, they had a sense of humor because I saw a picture. Apparently, there was a Halloween party or a, like a like a fancy dress party at the Stasi headquarters where you had to dress as in the in the in the work garb of the person that you were in charge of surveilling. <laughs> So like there's a picture of a guy dressed like an archbishop because he was like tapping the phones of the local catholic prelate.
1: That's good, man. I'm it's sure like, that uh, was. That's a, pretty funny for a german. A pretty lit party. That was the height actually historically of german humor. It's Absolutely. all been downhill yeah, from all, that yeah. point. No, not good. <laughs> not good. So so the so the CIA, right? First Truman says, "No, we're not going to do it." People prevail upon him. The networks that existed under the, you know, the, the private capitalist intelligence networks in the 20s, and then the OSS, which makes those up in the 1930s, for that few-year period between, I think it's 46 and 53, is it? Yeah. That the something like that for that for that interregnum in between, these people go back to working at like Wall Street law firms doing international deals uh, or international banking where they're keeping their eyes on the ground. They're keeping the networks of yes. people like Nazis, right? That they had worked with in the second world war. They're keeping those a Yeah. Like the, Gelenorg, the for example. Yeah. The, the rat lines and all that the rat lines. Yes. They, they um, all
0: those Ustasha guys to Argentina. Who?
1: So now we're going to get to Gladio. I, I just wanted to say like when the, when the CIA comes back together, when it's, put into law that this agency exists and it has the exact remit to do covert and overt activity abroad but not on the united states right this was like the long held dream of all these waspy bankers right who saw the need for this before the government even did right they they saw that this was necessary but at this time the forward thinking people were were already saying to themselves right This Cold War is going to happen. We need to start keeping the networks we had to create some sort of operation, some sort of stay-behind network that might exist in places like Italy, places like France and Belgium, West Germany, and elsewhere. So you have this stay-behind network being created on the one hand, and then you also have, of course, uh, the famous Italian election of 1948. Yes. Which... uh, God damn, we would have fucking won, man. It's hard to say we I as mean, like the Italian Communist Party, but they should have fucking won.
0: No, they would have won that one. I think the the, the amount of money that was put in, the amount of propaganda they had, every even vaguely Italian American actor uh, sending Voice of America messages about don't 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 disgrace the the Virgin Mary, and of course millions of dollars in cash to the literal mafia, yes, to assassinate, intimidate, and bribe people.
1: They created out of whole cloth. The fucking political party that won that, the yeah. Christian Democrat <laughs> yes. Party, which still exists to this day, was a CIA direct creation. Yeah, incredible.
0: Spreading cash around and finding enough like former fascists and 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 low level creeps to 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 oppose the communists.
1: Because going back to the Popular Front shit, if you thought that. Um, international communism had some prestige in the united states in fucking europe oh especially God. in france and italy the only people the, who, the only people who significantly
0: opposed fascism were the fucking communists in all these countries uh what the guy who shot mussolini was a communist and got elected to parliament there you go. uh yes the chinese the, the reason that the italian and french communist parties were so powerful and had to be defeated through the intervention of the CIA ring. through the, thro- the, the 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 breaking of the strikes using the mob in, in uh, Marseille and the guys, the Corsican mob guys who did the heroin, uh, the French Connection. And then by uh, monkeying in the 48 election in Italy, you had to do something because they were they were the local people because the war was won by Russians and, and, and Americans, foreigners at home. It was like a, a, a cla- mostly people who collaborated or allowed it to happen and were either. Uh, uh resentful about that or shame right uh, uh awful uh decadent disgusting ruling class who were executed yeah the only people who can say with any 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 um conviction that they opposed the worst the, the thing that destroyed their countries the only people who can say that were communists right because they risked their life and
1: many of them died to do it they had skin in the game yeah, exactly and so when the united states when our armies are prepared to leave the communists and the socialists. Most of the communists have an immense amount of prestige, and of course, when the United States were to leave, it would create this massive vacuum. Yeah, and in this Cold War framework, of course, the United States had to do everything it possibly could. Our ruling class to ensure that countries did not go to the other side,
0: because the 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 formal uh, undergirding. Uh, architecture of the gladio network as you said was a stay behind network right the idea was we've got a new front line here the iron curtain we've got these german the russian tanks waiting to pull pour through the folder gap right into west germany any moment because there was still this delusional belief that there was a possibility to have a conventional war that did not go nuclear and so what if they just swarmed europe you want to create uh, the ability to to do like a partisan movement, right? Like behind the lines, the way that the Soviets did in uh, occupied Eastern Europe during yep. uh, the war right. after Barbarossa, uh, have guys with guns, weapons, experience who could blow things up, disrupt the Soviet ex- uh, thing. So they were essentially weapons caches. That right. was like one of the big things that Gladio ended up being uh, areas. Weapons uh, that might be
1: purloined used for other things. Yeah, it's, well, that's the thing is
0: that so it's formally, it's, the, it's to resist the Soviets if they invade, But also, these are democracies, right? They technically have governments that can be influenced by. Uh, the people, well, what if the people decide to be communists? Right. You're not just going to let that happen. This is the double edged And sword. so, this stay behind network, they're not just going to wait for the Soviets right. to
1: show up. They're not going to let you, they're not going to wait by the back door and let you let them in the front door. It's not enough to be defensive against a you, potential Soviet invasion. You need to be offensive, but against your people own people and your own domestic. Your own people, situation. because as
0: Kissinger said, you know, you, you a country shouldn't go communist just through the irresponsibility of their own people. <laughs> right.
1: You had something? No, okay. So, yeah, the, there was a lot of illusions in the early 50s about the ultimate power of the CIA because in this, this, this beginning phases of the Cold War, the CIA was able to prove to the president, to the executive, and ultimately to the American people, that covert activity abroad, whether that be in Italy, whether that be in Greece, whether that be in Guatemala, Iran, whether that be in Iran was a more effective use of state power than simply to go into a war that would probably turn into world war three anyways. We can't really
0: confront the Soviets. What we could do is we can try to contain them and push them back through silent covert means. And the th- and we'll never acknowledge and they'll never acknowledge, which means they can't escalate right. the way that you, because you don't get a choice whether or not to acknowledge tanks rolling into your territory. Whereas uh, some subterfuge assassinations, anything could have happened, and there's no there's no uh, escalation tree, there's no ladder of escalation that is inherent to covert action. So it looks like it looked like the more humane, uh, and the more long-term uh, and
1: strategy, cost-effective too, right? Cost-effective too, yes, yeah, for sure.
2: I, I, another element of this is that uh, after World War II. Um, the European economy was ruined so right. as much as the Marshall Plan was like swift to rebuild the, the economy around the core of the capitalist states were really dependent on the colonial and semi-colonial states which gave those countries a lot of leverage to renegotiate these incredibly predatory deals that they had suffered under for decades so you get these sort of uh, these national populist figures or like quasi-socialist figures rising all over the third world and uh, in, you know uh it, these anti-colonial revolutions. Um, and that's why, like, a lot of progress is made, for example, in Latin America uh, between uh, 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 the end of World War II and, and 55 when the, in, these kind of parastate formations form to start getting these people out of power and normalizing, like, bringing those trade relations back because the European economy has stabilized. And that, that's the, the first example of that is probably Guatemala. Right.
0: Uh, I. I. Yeah. If anyone has read uh, Vincent Bevan's book about uh, the Indonesian genocide, in nineteen sixty-five, uh, he has. He does a great job of, of frame, reframing the Cold War in the Third World as a battle for resources. Like it was. It wasn't even ideological. It was strictly these countries are no longer going to be colonial powers because the European their colonial rulers can't afford it anymore. We can't. We can't realistically. Switch over to us being their formal employee. That's too invent. That's too much. That's too costly. What we have to do it's is remain. Kind of we have to maintain a colonial relationship, an economic relationship of extraction, without investment back into the countries. But it has to be through uh, indigenous governance, and that means going in there and, and overthrowing Mossadegh uh, overthrowing Su- Sukarno, yep, uh, Arbenz. Yes, Arbenz, Lumumba. Like making sure that that you you get to. You choose the native governments that you deal with on your terms, and that is inherently uh, a client-based, the client relationship then. And then you don't have to worry about them ever really turning the screws on you for, to actually get some money for these the wildly undervalued uh, assets.
1: In um, Douglas um, Valentine's book, The CIA is Organized yes. Crime, he actually sits down with a former CIA officer, agent, whatever, who's retired, and he asks him, he's like, like, what's the modus operandi on the ground? And exactly what you guys are talking about. Like, How is it that the United States gets this influence and is able to make these coups happen? He said it's quite simple, and you see this even to this day with the color revolutions in Eastern Europe. Uh, you see this uh, during the Arab Spring. The, the CIA and its proxies, or like capitalist front groups, whatever, they buy property When there's blood in the streets, as Uh. Baron Rothschild famously said, I buy when there's blood in the streets, even our own. Right? They buy up a bunch of property they, they create these sort of safe houses And they create these sort of institutions Like the fucking Kiwanis Club Why does Vietnam need a fucking Kiwanis Club All right, Why does fucking uh, Egypt need a, a fucking Rotary Club Right, There are these front groups that arise In order to like tap into the civil society of that place To find decent candidates That exist in that society Who are willing to Either through money or influence Or just pure power to take the side of the united states in any particular struggle so then you create these civil society groups at the same time you get military advisors sent in you start training their as yes. portions of that You're military getting,
0: it, it's it's just insinuating into the military they bring they we brought generations of foreign troops to the united states to train right specifically to
1: to Shape them towards seeing America as as the as the daddy, the school of the Americas, and it's not even generals. If you notice, all yeah. these revolutions or or coups for the last seventy years have been fucking colonels mm-hmm. because colonels are perfect in this middle rank. It's because not the if you're rank general, and file. Why do you want to rock the boat? You're already you're on top. Po- you're a political figure and you're doing great. It's yeah. fine. So the U.S. military coming in with advisors, finding these colonels in these middle ranks. Uh, radicalizing them towards an American position. And then, of course, as time goes on now, you've got the military, you've got civil society. You also find exile groups, people in the United States like I don't know, the MEK yeah. in Iran or the Fulong Gong or whatever bullshit-ass backwards group um, Ahmed Chalabi came from. Right? Actual,
0: <laughs> Iraqi National
1: Congress. There you go. Some bullshit made-up exile group yeah. that you can find a hand-picked leader from yeah. for when the coup happens, you can fly that motherfucker in yep. from the suburbs of D.C. <laughs> into Baghdad and say, okay, he's in charge now. It's been happening the same way since the 1950s. And, what's so, and what you see over time is
0: is that as as this, this as these uh dynamics deepen and, and and that's the capacity of the of the CIA gets uh higher and as the US government's influence being the hegemon increases that the actual amount of effort you have to go into to do it is much less like the first generation like the Dulles and wisner era uh uh coups we're, we're we're we yeah we would have to go in there grab a guy like Give the give them the, big of a, big of a big bag of money or something, right. and then like personally provide guys to drop bombs and all that stuff. Flying by the seat of your pants, yeah. just but, going and, but for having it. to directly intervene. If you have a hegemonic position that's is sustained enough, and you have normal relationships with a government, like normal military liaison relationships, normal pl- you you will get. A ruling class that is like a, like how a, a flower like will turn towards the sun, Right. like the ruling class and like the high levels of military will ter- 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 turn towards you. It, and, and by the time you get to like the second or third generation of coups like like Chile and Ande, You don't even need to do it. I mean, we gave a bunch of guys money and everything and and, and guns and shit. But like that was that was a Chilean operation because they knew that we would be fine with whatever they did. And everyone then like all, all the coups and then subsequent repressions. It's the way that everybody in the Nazi hierarchy was like innovating the Holocaust out of thin air. Without Hitler even being aware of it, right. because they want they wanted to do what they thought he would like. They called it working towards the Führer, right. and that's what all of our subsidiaries end up doing over time is working towards us, with with the assumption that they can't go too
1: far because we will be there to back them up. And in so then in a very serious and real way. During the Cold War, because you would have like a flower turning towards the sun, a certain segment of the ruling class of, say, Congo yeah. or the ruling class of Argentina moving towards an American position. You'd also have another section of that ruling class who would be moving towards a Soviet position. Yes. Hoping and you got to gotta be, take care of those motherfuckers. right? Hoping to do uh, import substitution industrialization, be part of like the, um, the third world block, the non-aligned movement. Yes. So really, the Soviet Union and the United States during this period are trying to battle for those colonels. They're trying to battle for the the Gaddafis. Gaddafis. They're trying. and, And as you said, I think this is right. It becomes a blueprint that is tremendously effective, so much so that even to today, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but even in like the color revolutions in Ukraine, it doesn't look like there's any American power involved at all. Yeah. It's just like some USDA money, some National Endowment for Democracy, some like weird Ukrainian capitalists that suddenly get fly flown in. You, when set the up, you suddenly set people take suddenly street. You suddenly
0: just through almost like a like a, like a, um magnet like electromagnetic waves, you have created a you have pushed people in a direction. You've turned people toward in towards a common Goal that coincidentally you share also as the U.S.
1: and coincidentally too provides real material gains if yes. they align with the United States. Yes, not just political power, of course. But look at when they talk about corruption in the developing world. Certainly through the Cold War, it if you if you were able to gain power in wherever Congo, right? You could loot the country oh, to absolutely. your heart's delight.
0: But if you did that and you were on America's shit list you 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 they can get you for jaywalking, but there's no crime too great if you're on the team. And if you're a, if you're just interested in maintaining power, that is
1: that that is a no brainer of a deal. A hundred percent. And this is what this is what always kind of bothered me when in the lead up to the Iraq war and then the protests against the war was the no blood for oil slogan. It represented something and it represented something real. Except that I, I, feel like people are trying to push that like America wanted to go right. in like near a yeah. <laughs> and directly just take put the a oil. big straw in <laughs> yeah. and like and just suck put it all the way, the way to, Trump to Dallas. Thinks it works, right? Exactly like the way babies think things work. Yes, baby brain bullshit. Yeah. They, they think that uh, there has to be a quid pro quid, quid pro, pro quo yeah. on the ground, yeah. right, where the United States will directly take the oil. It's not like that. Yeah. All through the Cold War, you see this this entire dynamic we're talking about. It was actually more important to the CIA, to those waspy, bougie motherfuckers and the presidents that directed them sometimes, that the conditions for capitalist accumulation... A stable market, stable yep. access to resources on the part of capital in general yeah. was the important thing. Not that the United States actually get that oil, not that it get those minerals, but that you were creating an international global market yes. which could be pushed into the commodity nexus yes. that exists with the United States could, at its core.
0: And which, as soon as that, as soon as that resource uh, hose is attached to the system, that that government is now is now subject to discipline from the market. Yes. Like, they have been essentially colonized without any troops landing because now their decisions, their economic decisions, their their self-determination of their economy doesn't exist anymore. They it, can know at any moment,
1: yeah. they can call in the bills, they can call in the, the loans, and you're done. Oh, that's it. Yeah, IMF, WTO shit, right, yeah. 100%. Yeah, so, like, this, again, points to, like, This entire network that we're talking about, these subterranean forces, this parapolitics, this deep state, whatever you want to call it. The main thing not being like the vulgar acquisition of particular resources at any time, but like the full throated and and ideological and practical attempt to make the world safe for capital, to set the conditions in place. Right. If it was in the Cold War, you need to make sure that it was in the Western sphere of influence and part of our capitalist system. If it's today, it's the same thing. There's just no enemy. Yeah. <laughs> right. You no longer have, you know, an opposing power trying to bring those people towards decolonization. I think and I think, the w- I think. if I was going to define
0: it, I would sort of t- uh, there was I think Robert Kagan or Robert Kaplan wrote a book uh, uh, called The Coming Anarchy in like the late 90s, early. Cool. Off, like right dope. After- and it's basically about but it's just about how like the global order is going to become totalizing, but as it does so resource extinction and, and social unrest caused by mass immiseration of a globalized capitalist system are going to create a, a a breakdown of order, uh, uh in the third world broadly. And like, uh, just a, a system of sort of mad Maxian rule in like urban areas. Uh, and, and, uh, I think that's like the, the real boogeyman. Yes, that's the like the if, the, if people situation. could articulate it, I think like not specifically terrorism, not specifically not specifically anything, because not, nothing as as embodied as the Soviet Union in a nuclear war, but so it's, if 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 the if the Cold War terror was like either the idea of the a uh, uh, hammer and sickle, you know, uh, flying over Mount Rushmore, or a Hell fucking yeah. or a mushroom cloud this is just it's all coming apart and so the our, our the military assertion the military budget our, our fixation on our operators and our troops and, and our, our capacity it's this it is a uh attempt to ideologically the way we it's it's sort of narratively constrained is like these are the things that are keen to keep the wolf from the door
1: the thin blue line but
0: internationally yeah honestly that's yep. it like that's the undergirding ideology of all of it now, because now we're at the edge. The 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 the, the free real estate has run out. We we've the, the myth is ended, as J- Greg Grand had said, and now we have to uh, deal with real crisis, real scarcity. Uh, and so the degree to which we're armed, internationally and lo- lo- locally, uh, domestically, is the degree to which we can protect what we still have. Right, and that's like the new. I think that's the new psychic terrain that replaced the Cold War uh, uh,
1: uh, annihilation. And that gets abstracted into things like freedom.
2: I think what the those two strategies have in common is that it's about finding stability for global capital. Like a, as much as the Gladio P2 freaks were, you know, toasted to evil and said that they were fascists, what they really cared about is that is their industries. Oh yeah. They're all industrialists. Yeah. Um, like
1: Berlusconi, so, who was part of Yeah, that. Berlusconi got in
0: power, and he, he wasn't like doing some multi year plan to bring back uh, Il Duce. He just wanted to get paid
1: for the Bunga Bunga. bunga he, party. he wanted to Bunga Bunga. Exactly. He just wanted to Bunga Bunga.
2: wanted to fuck.